0: the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate this is god's word amen thank you jenny so good morning good to see you my name is drew bennett one of the pastors here we are continuing a series in uh, what is called the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134 in our uh, hymn book in the Old Testament. These are the songs that the pilgrims would be singing to one another as they journeyed toward Jerusalem uh, during the feast. Uh, it's also a reminder that all of life is lived towards God, and if life is fundamentally lived towards God, that impacts every single part of our life, including the way we do our work which is the topic of this psalm, Psalm 127. It's about work. Uh, Now, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that means it's about the work you're doing in parenting your children. If you're a student, it's about the way way you're doing the work that you're doing in preparing for a life of work uh, in the years to come. And so there are many ways to apply it, but we're going to talk about uh, this issue of work this morning from these verses. Now, full disclosure, I'm coming out of a period of overworking, Uh, I've not. I was thinking. I've not had really a true day off in over a month now, and that's a confession. It's not a boast. A lot of times we mean that as a boast. I truly mean it as a as a confession, uh, so that you can know who it is that's standing before you this morning, talking to you about these things. I am a productivity junkie. Uh, My favorite thing in the world uh, is to find strategies for doing more in less time. I read all the books. I listen to all the podcasts. Uh, because I just, I, my personality is one that just really, so I, I'm very prone uh, to overworking. Pray for me, uh, because it can be a spiritual sickness. Uh, but what about you? Are you prone to overwork? Because there's a difference between working and working hard and overworking. And this is a psalm that really talks about that issue of, of overworking. So are you prone to overworking? If so, why? We're going to see uh, from this, these verses here that there's a doctrine uh, that Solomon gives to us that helps us make sense of these things. Secondly, we're going to apply that doctrine to this issue of work, whatever that means for you and whatever stage of life that you're in. And then thirdly, we're going to see that there's a spiritual power hinted at here uh, that put work uh, in, in its that puts work or work and rest in their proper balance. That helps us work hard but not ultimately overwork. That's what this psalm is about. Okay, the doctrine, the application, and then a spiritual power to help us work but not overwork. Let's, let's just work together through this text, uh, beginning with the doctrine. And here it is. If you look back at verse 1, the psalm very clearly teaches this. God is necessary. We are contingent. Let me say that another way. God is necessary, which means you are not. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Take God away. And all you have left is vanity, it says here. That word vain comes up three times in these verses. And it refers to something that is empty or without meaning or literally nothingness. And so the doctrine is just this. Without God, life is both objectively in reality and subjectively in the way you feel about it, in the way you experience it, in the the feelings that come through it, empty. Both objectively and subjectively empty. Now, let's talk about each of those, because in the ultimate objective sense, if there is no God, life itself is meaningless. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, as Christians believe, then all of life, then everything is vain. And so he goes on, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now be careful, that's not an amen moment. I wanna like just stop before anybody yells that anywhere in the crowd because that would be the wrong time to shout out amen. There'll be other times in the sermon where you can do that, but not right there because Paul is mocking there. He's He's saying, if there is no God, if this life is all there is, then really the best you can do is live it up. Find whatever joy you can in the, in the silly little things of life because that's all you've got. He says there is no other rational morality. And what I love is the Bible is a stunning work of intellectual honesty. That unlike the way we think about such things uh, these days, we try to hit a middle road that really doesn't even exist. But the Bible, the Bible forces you to deal with honestly with these things, you, you you know you read the bible and you come to the conclusion that, you know if God is real if God is real if he's really there if, if what the bible says is true is really true then you owe him everything but if he's not then anything goes there's no middle ground I mean those are the choices but culturally what we've done is we've tried we've thrown God out but then tried to hold on to, tried to keep all of the meaning and the morality that comes with him. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. If, he, if God is really there, if, if the reality of God is reality, then you owe him everything. If he's not, then anything goes. Eat and drink. Because really, nothing really matters in the end anyway. That That is the decision that we're forced into. Now, practically, though, practically in our lives, if God is not there if god's not in it no matter what it is then it doesn't matter and that too is what verse one teaches look there it says you can build but if god is not building whatever you build will eventually crumble because what matters is god and not you unless the lord builds it says those who build labor in vain unless the lord parents those who those who parent worry and fret and discipline their children in vain. Unless the Lord preaches, the poor sap preaching preaches in vain. What's the doctrine? He can build and parent and preach without you and I, but we can't without him. Because he is necessary and we are not. That is the objective reality that Paul, that, that the psalm confronts us with. But the other thing is that the word vain also refers to the way we subjectively experience life, the way we feel about what we're doing from day to day. And, and so we could say it this way, without God, life is just bios. It's just biology. And according to the Bible, there is bios life and there's zoe life. There are these two words that describe life, that are translated life. And bios life is just breathing in and breathing out and making it from one day to the next, and finding whatever joy you can in the little moments. But we were made for more than that, to experience deep meaning and purpose in our day-to-day lives, abundant life, Zoe life. And Zoe life comes from being able to connect whatever it is that you're doing, no matter what it is, to what God is doing, uh, because only what God is doing ultimately is what will last And the psalm is here trying to help us reimagine our lives. That we get caught up just looking around and not looking up. And the psalm is saying, look up and you'll realize there's something bigger always going on that we can be a part of. There's something that God is indeed building. There's a story that he is writing. And we have a crucial part to play. And life becomes meaningful and not vain only as we connect our day-to-day doing to what God is doing in the world. Which is why Paul in Colossians 3 says it this way, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, do it with all of your might. Why? Because you're doing it as unto the Lord. But see, without that proper God orientation, without that proper toward Godness of our work, life will feel empty. It will, will will experience its vanity. Rebecca McLaughlin has written a book that got quite a bit of press this past year. It's, uh, the title is Confronting Christianity, and the thesis of the book, or the b- main premise of the book, is that uh, that Christianity is a religion that really stands up to the hard questions that, is a- that are asked of it. So ask it whatever intellectually rigorous questions you want to. Uh, there are typically good answers to those questions, and Uh, one of the chapters in the book just just ponders this question, aren't we better off without religion? Because you hear this in our culture, don't you? Aren't we better off just kind of throwing religion aside? Now, spoiler alert, the answer she gives is no. And here's what she says. She says, to say that religion is bad for you is like saying drugs are bad for you without distinguishing cocaine from life-saving medications. In general, religious participation appears to be good for your health and happiness. Turn this data on its head, and the trend towards secularization in America is a public health crisis. So the data is clear. You take away God, and you take away all the things that make life worth living. That's really true. Uh, Dr. Atul Gawande has written uh, a number of articles about studies being done in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, uh, where of course people go at the end of their life, and my grandmother is in a place like that, and it's really hard to watch her because we've seen her just every time I visit her, she's like, I don't know what I'm doing here, and she really can. It's really hard for her to fight just despair and and, and the sense of pervasive meaninglessness in her life because she's coming to the end of her life. But what's happening in some of these homes is administrators are are um, they're doing things like bringing in dogs and cats. And even chickens that have to be taken care of by the residents and they're giving residents jobs to do where there's a dog that literally needs to be walked or fed or taken care of or whatever. And what's the results uh, in these studies are astounding. The residents in these places are waking up and coming to life in ways that they have not for a long time. The need for medications uh, is, is the, I mean literally the data shows that I mean, the need for medication goes down sometimes almost 50% in these places. That death rates fell significantly in the homes where they did this. Why? Because human beings need a why. We need a why. And here's the way this works. What's the why of your life? Why are you working so hard? What are your, what's your goal? What's, what are you really after? What's the why? You might answer Something, it's probably pretty easy for you to come to an answer to that question. You say, well, to take care of my family or uh, to leave a lasting legacy or to make a difference in the world. But then what you have to do is you have to say, okay, great, but why? Why does that matter? And once you get to that second layer, the answer, you might find that it's more difficult to come to an answer. Uh, And what you have to do is you have to keep, every time you come to an answer to the question why, you pose the same question again. And the deeper you go, that same question keeps coming up. Why? 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 But what's the purpose of that? But why is that so meaningful? Why? Until you get to God himself. He is the terminus. But see, if you stop before you get to him, whatever meaning you arrive at, it might provide meaning for you, but that meaning will be fragile and less intellectually satisfying. Because without God, ultimately, there is no grand why. Without the Lord, there is no why big enough to satisfy our hearts. Unless the Lord, all that's left is vanity. That's the doctrine. Okay? Now, let's apply that to work. Work whatever your work might be, because that is the subject of this psalm as I see it. Maybe it's because I'm a workaholic and I'm seeing work here, but I don't think so. I think this is what this psalm is after. God is necessary and you are not. And if you are believing that properly, then what we're told is that it will keep the right balance between your work and the rest of your life. But when you're not believing that correctly, when you start to think of yourself as being necessary in God's place then you'll see things begin to get out of balance. You'll start overworking. Verse 2, rising up early, going late to rest, and eating the bread of anxious toil. Doesn't that sound great? Isn't that what everybody's after in life? But that, that is the capstone of the American dream experiment. Psalm 127 is a manual for how to work while avoiding the danger of overworking. And the very first thing that we should say about these verses is that they are not opposed to hard work. Work is good. Working hard is good. Overworking is bad. So let's say it this way. There's a difference between hard work and anxious work. Or look there, verse 2, anxious toil. God doesn't say that work is in vain. We've been made to work and to work hard, to work with our hands in the dirt with enough energy and so forth that you feel it the next morning. However, he does say that toiling is in vain. Now note that this is a psalm of, of ascent of Solomon there at the very beginning. I don't know if that got into the printing of, of the text in your, in your, in your uh, did not in the worship folder. If you have a Bible, you'll see that there. And so Solomon is writing these words. Uh, we know that because it's there, but also because uh, it parallels a lot of what he had to say in other places in the scriptures, like in Ecclesiastes. For example, listen to these verses. It's almost a parallel passage. Here's Solomon in Ecclesiastes. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. And so when does work become overwork? When does work Stop being something good and become what this anxious toiling that that the psalm is, is warning us about here. And there are lots of ways that you could answer that question. But one clear way is, when does work become toil? When you can't stop. When you can't rest. When you stay up late and you get up early and there's never enough time. And you climb into bed exhausted and stare at the ceiling or at a smartphone because you can't. Turn it off. You can't stop your mind from spinning. That's vanity. And it's a terrible way to live, not to mention, the word means it's a complete waste of time. Why? Why is, why is that way of living a complete waste of time? Because you're acting as if you are necessary and you are not. Isn't that great news? We use, we use the word vain or vanity to describe a person who thinks too highly of themselves. And so the root of all unreality and of all the feelings of meaninglessness and anxiety that plague our culture, and they do, the root of all of that is thinking that you are necessary and God is not. But you you can do that in your work. No matter what your work is, you can begin to think, unless I build, unless I go, unless I'm there, unless I watch, unless I parent the kids. Unless I send the email, unless I lead the presentation, unless I chair the meeting, and there's no end. You do it all, and there's more to be done. So you start leaving earlier and getting home later and sleeping less and getting by with caffeine and energy drinks and anxiety medications, and that is the bread of anxious toil. But there's another way. Believing the truth, which can bring the right balance between work and rest. And we see it here at the end of verse 2, which provides a contrast. You don't see it so much in the translation, but it's there in the original language. In contrast to all that he's said comes this last phrase there in verse 2. But instead, God gives to his beloved sleep. Translators are confounded by the wording there. It really is beautiful, isn't it? I've heard from so many people in the last few days that when they have a restless night and can't sleep. This is this it's this verse their hearts go to, and they just try to console themselves with the thought. God gives his beloved sleep. He gives his beloved sleep. But it's fascinating. Translators are really confounded by the wording because it's unclear exactly how this should be translated. But the uncertainty, the the fuzziness of it actually, I think enhances the meaning here. Because you could, on the one hand, do it as the ESV's done here, he gives to his beloved sleep. But it could just as easily be translated this. He gives to his beloved while they sleep. Which I just love. And that is the opposite of anxious toil that keeps you up late and gets you up early. And there's a story actually from the Old Testament that helps. And so the language of the building of a house here in verse 1, according to Robert Alter, is possibly an allusion to the construction of the temple. Uh, which was, of course, a huge part of Solomon's life and and work. Uh, We've been reading about that together in our community Bible reading. So in 2 Samuel 7, David, who is Solomon's father, uh, he had it in his heart to build a house for the Lord. So he called the pastor and said, Pastor, I want to give a whole bunch of money to build a church. And no pastor has ever said no to anything like that. And so Nathan said, that sounds like a great idea to me. And then the Lord had to come and meet with him and say, no, 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 we're not doing this. And Nathan was sent by the Lord back to David. And, uh, and here was the message that the prophet gave to David. In all of his desire to do something great for God, the Lord answered him and said, David, as grateful and as kind of, that, uh, of you as that is, listen, this is the way it's going to work. David, you're, no, no, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like this. David, you can't build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. It's really remarkable in Second Samuel seven. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. David, I, I I love that you want to build a house for me, but that's not the way our relationship works. You don't do the building for me; I do the building for you because I'm a God of grace, and our relationship is not about all that you're going to do for me, but what I'm going to do for you. So, the verse not only means that God gives sleep to His beloved, but that also that He gives to them while they sleep. He works to, for them while they can't work for Him because they're sleeping. Christianity is a religion of grace. It is God's doing, which is such good news. And I watched this long spoken word piece that Andrew Peterson tweeted about this week. Uh, and so you can find it if you follow him or you can go look it back. Now, if you don't know what a spoken word uh, piece is, it's, it's kind of a poet, poetic rap kind of thing. And so I'm not going to try to rap it to you. That would be disastrous. But I will read a little part of it. Um, And uh, the refrain in this piece, which I just found so profound, was um, uh, the refrain he kept saying over and over again, I gave my life to Jesus a thousand times. And he's just going through this as he recounted his growing up in moralistic Evangelical Christianity, where really the emphasis is you're always trying to do for God, you're always, you know, you're always trying to show God, to prove to God uh, how much uh, you love Him and how how worthy He is, and it never seems to be enough, and you just so you try harder and you try harder, and the solution to whatever sin battle you're up against just seems to be try harder, give more, do more, whatever the case might be, and and this man is just reflecting on uh, this experience, and I found this lyric particularly profound. He said, "I gave my life to Jesus." But somewhere down the road, I slid. My faith undid, because beneath the lid, the venom hid. Beneath the lid, the venom hid. I was your youth group's keenest kid, but no one hated God the way I did. See, with him, it's just take, 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 without a break, his thirst for blood, who can slake? I gave my life to Jesus, but I guess it was no good. I did what I could to appease him, but no pleasing seemed possible. Now, I meet with people all the time who talk like this, who are coming out of this experience this of moralism, give, give, give to God and, and hope it's not enough, and it never feels, the, your conscience is never satisfied. Uh, but So there's always just a little bit more. You can do a little bit better, you can do a little bit more, and you keep going and keep going and keep going, and there's just no end of it. But this person who wrote this, he had this experience of, of really coming to see the reality of God's grace to him in the gospel, he goes on, he says, but the gospel said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. There he stands in your stead. Your king lifts your head. He has shouldered your dread. Arms outstretched till they bled. Look at the book and unhook from this wearisome view. Stop giving your life to Jesus. He's the giver who liveth for you. And so in Christianity, God and Jesus is doing the work. Our work is to believe. He does the doing, we do the believing. But here's the thing, don't don't misunderstand. When you're believing rightly, it puts you to work. It puts you to work, but with a healthy rhythm of work and rest, daily, weekly, even yearly. So one of the questions is, do you have daily, weekly, and yearly habits of rest? Because the goal is to be working, and working hard, but not overworking, because... The real work is God's work. He is necessary and I am not. And so there's an obvious allusion to the Sabbath principle here. He gives to his beloved rest. Uh, he, he gives to his beloved the heart frame to Sabbath. Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in um, Nashville, has defined Sabbath this way, and I find it so helpful. He says it is organizing our work around our rest and organizing our lives around our worship and not reversing the order. And I really like that. Sabbath is something that you do in order to continue believing the right way as a regular reminder that you are on the receiving and not the producing end of things. And so Walter Brueggemann has said this, Sabbath is an invitation to receptivity, an acknowledgement that what is needed is given and not seized. Which is why every day in seven, the Lord says, you need to take a break. So that you can learn that the other six days you live a given life too. And here's the reality. When you don't have a rhythm of work and rest, both work and rest are negatively affected. Work becomes overwork. This is going to sound strange, but work becomes overwork, which leaves you too tired to rest. There is such a thing. But the word here is translated sleep. You notice that in the ESV? So we have to deal with that too for just a minute, and the science is clear that adults need between seven and eight hours of sleep every night. Now we laugh at that, don't we? I mean, that just does that sound just ridiculous to anybody else besides me? Teenagers and children need even more, though my teenagers fight me on this all the time. They need like eight, nine, ten hours of sleep, and nobody's getting enough sleep. Nobody is getting the sleep that they need, and some of that is temperamental. Some of it's medical. Insomnia is a real thing. I'm not talking about that. There are spiritual causes to this, and that's what I'm really after, to talk about that for just a minute, and Tish... Harrison Warren has written a great little book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And it's a really, really profound book. And she wrote a whole chapter about sleep. And here's the one line from that chapter. She says, Our sleep habits reveal our loves. If you want to know what you really believe, don't quote the catechism to me. I'm not so concerned about that. If you want to know what you really believe, how are you sleeping? How do my sleep habits reveal what I really believe? It's a great question to ask. What things produce so much anxiety they keep me up at night? It's a warning light when that happens. When that really begins to happen in your life, it's a warning light on the dashboard that somehow I'm believing wrongly. Either something has become too important or I've become too necessary in some way. And the result is a restlessness that doesn't allow me to rest as God promises here. See, there's a powerful lesson in sleep as well sleep exposes you every day to reality we cannot function without it we have limits which means we are unable to build and watch on our own it seems we need god after all because when we finally give in to sleep here's the great news he goes right on working without us and when we wake up we wake up into a day already made by the god who works the night shift isn't that great But the key, just to wrap up this morning, the key is to know you're loved. Look what it says. He gives his beloved sleep there, verse 2. And that really caused me to recall the passage in Matthew 6 you might be familiar with there where Jesus says that the way to battle anxiety, the anxiety that causes you to overwork, is to know you have a loving father. So Jesus said, you know, look at the birds. They don't store up food. They don't worry about what they're going to eat tomorrow, and God feeds them and you're far more valuable to him than they are. If he feeds them, surely he's gonna take care of you as well. Stop worrying about your life. You don't have to make provisions for your life, that's God's job. And look at the flowers. He says, you know, they don't spin, they don't labor, they don't fret. And God is lavishly generous with them. Flowers, which are here one minute and gone the next, but you, you have a soul that lasts forever and you matter Way more to God than they do. Don't you think he's going to be generous to you, too? You, you're not birds. You're not flowers. You're his beloved. Now, the fascinating thing is that the word there is in the singular. you see that? He gives his beloved sleep. He gives his beloved one sleep is really the way it should be translated. And it's the same where the word comes up in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul says this, he says, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, singular. God loves us, we're told, in the beloved. He predestined us in the beloved. He blesses us in the beloved. There is a single beloved, and I have great news this morning. You wanna hear it? It's not you. But if you believe in him, if you believe into him, then you have the same status with the father that he does. You can have the same title, you can be called beloved too. You are loved in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his doing, his life of perfect obedience, his sacrificial death on the cross for sin, his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension, his compassionate, kingly reign over all things in heaven, all of that doing is necessary to claim the title beloved. He is necessary. You are not. And the truth is, nothing you do can make the Father love you any more or any less than he already loves you in the beloved if you're in the beloved. Because you can't improve on Jesus' work. What is it he said as he was dying upon the cross? It is finished. To tell us thy. It's the end of the road. There's nothing more. You go any further, you fall off a cliff. This is the last stop. There's no, literally nothing left to be done. There's, no, there's nothing beyond this point right here. And so... I get to stand before you this morning and say, would you please just stop worrying so much? Take a day off. Or go this afternoon and take a nap to the glory of God. (laughs) Amen. I got an amen. There is such a thing, right? Leave work. Leave work a little early this week. And spend some time with the family. Because the test, listen... The test of saving faith is not your willingness to work for Jesus, but your ability to rest in him. Let me say that again. The test of faith in Jesus, saving faith, is not your willingness to work for him, but the ability to rest in him. Because the real work, the work of being made right with God, is done before you even get started. Now, there's still work to do. Don't don't misunderstand. There's still work to do, but work free of the need to prove yourself And to provide for yourself. Because that work that's underneath all the other work has been accomplished. And when that's the case, you can work. And you can work hard. But then you can go home at quitting time and get a good night's sleep. Now I was going to talk about children here at the end. But um, we really don't have time. And so come back next week. That's the cliffhanger. We're going to go there next week and talk about Psalm 128 as well. Uh, where this psalm ends. We're going to pick up next week, Um, but it really deserves its own sermon. So let me just say this. Let me close with this as we kind of wrap a bow on what we're thinking about this morning. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul uses the same imagery here, building, to describe his ministry. And he says that the truth here, the gospel of grace, the gospel of God's necessity, uh, that God's work for us in Jesus that that is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And anything built upon that theological, that, the, re, the foundation of that reality, anything that you build on it, it will last. Now, he says that there's a day, capital D, when that's coming, when each one's work will be manifest, for the, for the day will disclose it. And so here's what Paul says. He says, if you build a life on the foundation of the necessity of God, and if you build knowing, if you work, if you parent, if you study knowing that God is building, and that that's what matters most, then you might accomplish less. You might hit a single and not a home run. You might get a B plus and not an A plus. You might accomplish less. Which just is really hard, isn't it? But whatever you do accomplish will last. But if not, if you build thinking your building is what matters, Then all of the overworking, all of the anxious toil, all of the late nights and the early mornings, he says this, it will all burn away and there will be nothing left. And so, truly, less is more. I mean, that's the lesson. There's an irony here, but know the lesson of the psalm less of you and more of God and whatever you're doing is always more. And so, hear the hymn writer. Come to this table and rejoice this morning as he says, weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil ye so, cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Would you pray with me as we come to the table now? So Father, in these last moments of our service, I pray that this truth would just help us catch our breath for many of us, that's what we need. We just need to catch our breath. <laughs> we just need to breathe deeply for a minute because we've been going so hard. It's like we're, we're we've been running a 400 yard dash and we're at the end and we can't hardly breathe. And we just need to breathe in and breathe out and catch our breath at the thought of your building and you're watching and you're working for us. And then once we catch our breath, to get back to work. But give us that moment of relief. Give us that moment of rest, even here. And as we would say to you, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief, we thank you that you have not left us to struggle through these things on our own, but you have condescended to us, not just to give us your word, but to also give us this holy sacrament that we now come to, so that we might not only hear with our ears, but also see with our eyes and taste with our lips the reality of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave, you give even as your beloved sleep. You're the God who fills our lives with good things, and we have no want. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. That is the great truth of the scriptures. And so help us to believe and to believe it more deeply than we ever have before so that we might work, but do work that would ultimately be to your glory, work and build a life that will truly last, a life full of meaning and purpose and vision of your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, unless the blood of God himself was shed, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of bulls and goats is not enough. Unless the Lord himself saves, there is no salvation. But because he has done just that in the Lord Jesus, he can now uh, turn towards you as these words promise, to bless you and to be with you. And so go with the promise of these words on your hearts. Uh, Go and work hard as unto the Lord, uh, but not with anxious toil go and work and go and rest to the glory of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you and go in his peace.